The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. To the government's credit, they did mention that there are other limiting factors as well, um, including nexus requirement and the official proceeding requirement, though they didn't get into that because I think the the mens rea was just such a thorny issue and across all three judges it was it was really talked up and 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 discussed at length judge pan and katsas to some extent i would say were unconvinced by defense counsel's argument this is where there was quite a bit of back and forth between judge pan and defense counsel Uh, she made clear that the issue of corruptly was not before the court she even at one point suggested that the court would need supplemental briefing to decide the issue. And Judge Walker noted that the case can be remanded back down to Judge Nichols to decide. And so I think that insofar as the mens rea requirement is an issue, it's not going anywhere. I'm Natalie Orpet, executive editor of Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare podcast, December 13th, 2022. Yesterday morning, the D.C. Circuit heard oral argument in the case United States v. Fisher. It's possible you've never heard of it, but it's one of the most important cases we've seen in a while relating to criminal prosecutions for the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The case is about a previously obscure statute, at least in this context, that criminalizes corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. It's a charge that DOJ has brought against hundreds of January 6th rioters. Lawfare legal fellow Serafine Danani attended the argument this morning. I sat down with her to discuss what the parties argued, how the judges responded, and what might happen to the charge of corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 13th, 2022. Corrupt obstruction before the D.C. Circuit. Okay, Seraphine. So you've just come from oral argument in United States v. Fisher, which was held this morning in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, we're recording on December 12th. Um, and this is a consolidated case bringing together three criminal defendants' cases in coming out of the D.C. District Court that has hugely important implications for broader criminal investigations and prosecutions coming out of January 6th. And we'll come back to why that is. But I'd love to have you start by just telling us about the case itself and about the charge that DOJ is trying to get reinstated through this appeal. Sure. So there are three defendants in this case, Joseph Fisher, Garrett Miller, and Edward Lang, who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, penetrated inside the building, and tried to 
obstruct Congress's official proceeding of certifying the election. They were charged under 18 U.S.C. Section 1512C2, which is corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. And at the district level, Judge Nichols dismissed this charge, which was quite surprising because in about 70 cases already, defendants have been charged under Section 1512C2. Uh, 15 of Judge Nichols's callings have upheld the charge, not to mention six federal circuit courts of appeals as well. Uh, no district or circuit court judge has endorsed Judge Nichols's interpretation of 1512C2. And so today the question was really, you know, is it appropriate, given the facts of these three defendants, whether they can in fact be charged with 1512C2? And as you noted just now, what kind of repercussions that would have for the pending cases where defendants in other cases have been charged under this statute. Okay, so let's take a minute to talk about the statute itself, um, which, as you mentioned, for those keeping track at home, is 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2, um, which carries a maximum penalty of 20 years imprisonment. And that statute reads, whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in in an official proceeding, or otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. So that's a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Tell us about what the key interpretive questions are with regard to that statute and the facts at hand here. So the key question is this word otherwise and how it fits into the broader scheme of the statute. So Judge Nichols reasoned that if the statute were interpreted broadly, specifically if section subsection C2 were interpreted broadly, then it would include virtually any act that obstructs or impedes or influences an official proceeding. It would then render the word otherwise a surplusage or unnecessary, and courts really don't like doing that. They like to give each word in a statute its own meaning because they expect that that's what Congress intended. And so Judge Nichols decided that the best way to interpret subsection C2 is to see it as a narrow catch-all clause that applies to similar conducts that are defined in subsection C1. So subsection C1, as you noted, makes it a crime to alter, destroy, mutilate, or conceal, I believe it was record, other object, document. And so he basically holds that under subsection C2, insofar as someone has corruptly obstructed an official proceeding, they had to have acted with obstructing the record, document, or other object. Okay, great. And and I should have mentioned um, there is a separate section of this statute that defines the term official proceeding to include a proceeding before the Congress. So folks who have been following this very closely may remember that very early on when DOJ first started bringing this charge against January 6th rioters, there was some question about whether the events that were happening within Congress on January 6th actually were the type of, quote, official proceeding that the statute envisions. Um, And just a a brief history lesson on that. Um, The reason that people were 
wondering about that is because this law was initially passed as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and was a response to Enron, where the issue there was that on the defense side, um, there was an accountant, I believe, with Enron who had destroyed documents that would have been used by DOJ to prove its case. So that that whole issue that I think some people still remember about why this charge may be controversial is actually not at issue. Um, so this is an official proceeding, this being Congress's certification of the election on January 6th. But there are, as you mentioned, these other terms. And you were describing Judge Nichols' interpretation focusing on otherwise. But I know you mentioned, um, and our colleague Roger Parloff mentioned in his recent article on the topic, that the defendants, the criminal defendants, actually raised some different arguments in their briefing before the D.C. Circuit that did not rely solely on a defense of Judge Nichols's interpretation, but actually raised another way to interpret this statute that would still support the dismissal of those charges. So can you just talk us through that one as well? Yeah, it's really interesting because even at court today, they they made hay of this, this idea of 1512c2 encompassing not just documents or other objects or records, but actually requiring some sort of impairment of evidence. And I believe the reason they went down that route is because, as I mentioned, there are six circuits across the United States that have upheld the 1512c2 charge, and none of them have endorsed Judge Nichols's holding. However, if we are to see the facts of the case in those cases, then we would see that those defendants perhaps did in some way impair evidence. So I, I think that the strategy the defense counsel had in this case is by arguing for a different interpretation than the one Nichols gave, 1512c2 could be interpreted as criminalizing some attempt to impair evidence. And those cases that were before the circuit courts would fit neatly into this interpretation as they did involve some action with respect to impairment of evidence, even if they didn't involve some action with respect to a record, document, or object. And uh, what I found somewhat comical is Judge Pan really took defense counsel to town and 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 pushed him on this, asking very explicitly, do you, give me a yes or no answer, agree with Judge Nichols's holding? And as lawyers tend to do, uh, defense counsel responded with the question he wished he were asked. And, you know, she pushed him again. I just want a yes or no answer. And I think he did some awkward maneuvering to get out of the argument. But I think that's ostensibly what he's doing. He's arguing that, you know, we agree with the outcome of what Judge Nichols is saying, but we want to interpret 1512c2 to be an impairment of evidence uh, issue, because not only would that be aligned with the circuit court's what the circuit courts have held in the United States with other January 6 cases, but it would also mean that, at least according to the counsel, that it would disqualify the defendants in this case from being charged under the statute. Okay, so that's really interesting. So to keep things consistent with other circuit court opinions, this focus on impairing evidence, defense attorneys are arguing the facts pertaining to their clients don't support a conviction if the 
important term in in the statute is impairing evidence. What is it that they did that the defense is arguing certainly does not constitute impairing evidence in a way that these other cases that were upheld in other circuits do? So counsel didn't go into details of the facts of the case, but but it's an interesting question because Judge Walker did push defense counsel to appreciate that the facts of his client's case are unprecedented compared to perhaps the other cases, the other January 6th cases. I think what defense counsel was trying to get at was that where, where do we draw the line here? At what point is something qualified as a misdemeanor versus a felony under 1512 C2? Under a misdemeanor charge, you have six months to a year sentence. This this felony charge is a 20-year prison sentence. And so the, the two sentences are quite disparate. And I think that defense counsel supports the the side where they see their their clients being charged with a misdemeanor versus a felony. And counsel didn't do this, but Judge Walker passionately, in fact, made note of the actions of the defendants in this case and that they weren't just going about, you know, picketing or protesting, uh, parading, which are misdemeanor charges. They not only went into the Capitol, but stayed inside the Capitol, penetrated the Capitol down to Pelosi's office. Judge Pan also noted that they used a bat to hurt officers. And in her view, that actually aligns with Judge Nichols's reading that they use some object to obstruct an official proceeding because if officers are unable to defend the Capitol and allow Congress to continue certifying the election, that's an obstruction of the proceeding. And and Judge Walker also concluded with, I believe, a social media post by the de- one of the defendants that said, this is not a protest, this is war basically undercutting the idea that this is just some protest, misdemeanor charge. Uh, it's actually elevated, given the aggravating factor, to uh, a felony charge. And so, at least in this case, I think, if anything, defense counsel is trying to say that their clients are maybe seen as more of, a, of misdemeanants rather than felony convicts. So we have a really interesting sort of multi-layered strategy and presentation by the defense. And I'm wondering, obviously, there there was briefing before this, and so the government was not blindsided by the fact that the defense would raise these arguments that were not purely a defense of the decision below, but raised additional ways to interpret the statute. But how did they respond to this sort of now increasingly complex defense of the idea that this statute should not apply to these defendants? The DOJ's argument was rooted in this idea that the text is clear. It's one thing to use interpretive canons when there is ambiguity, but in this case, there isn't any ambiguity. So using the interpretive canons is, is not necessary. And it's probably incorrect what defense counsel is doing. So according to the government, their interpretation of 1512 C2 aligns with DC District Court Judge uh, Moss, who who saw C uh, 1512 C1 and 1512 C2 as certainly working together in that 
C2 is tethered to C1, but that C2 is a catch-all phrase, but it's also quite broad. And the reason he he found that and the reason that the government agrees is because if you look at 1512 C1, you have a series of verbs followed by direct objects. So the, the verbs are altering, destroying, mutilating, concealing, and then the direct objects are record, document, or other objects. Then you move on to 1512C2, and again, you have a series of verbs, uh, obstruct, impede, or influence, followed by a direct object of official proceeding. So taken together, it doesn't make sense uh, if you just look at the statute and read it to then insert record, document, or other object from C1 to C2. And in fact, Congress has been put on notice that courts are interpreting 1512 C2 in the way that they have been. And they've had opportunities to amend 1512 C2 that they haven't perhaps lends credibility to the government's argument that 1512 C2 can stand on its own. It doesn't have to be limited by record, document, or other object uh, requirement. And so I think that's how the government seemed to respond. They were asked also a series of questions during oral argument of, you know, how about the interpretive canon X that a defense counsel used and 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 why and, and interpretive canon Y that defense counsel used. And certainly they responded to it, but I I think the underlying point that they kept getting back to is that we start with the text and there's really no ambiguity. So you use the interpretive canons when there are ambiguities, and it's also inappropriate to use the interpretive canons to create ambiguity, which at least in their in their brief, they suggest that defense counsel did. That's really interesting. So so basically, we're in a place where the government is saying, all of this is really obvious. Just look at the statute itself. This clearly all works. And the defense's argument is to say that, in fact, this statute is not clear, and therefore we have to interpret it. And applying these methods of interpretation, here are ways that we can argue that this statute doesn't properly apply. So I imagine the judges gave some things away about their views um, as they were asking questions, or at least helped to distill what they thought were the most thorny issues. Um, And you've spoken about that a little bit, but can you just tell us about what your major takeaways were in terms of how the judges seem to be thinking about this problem? Sure. So when I went into oral argument, I expected the issue to be about the term otherwise, and also this line drawing exercise of what qualifies as a misdemeanor versus a felony. And I spoke a bit about the misdemeanor and felony points, so I won't belabor it. But what was interesting is that the question of how otherwise should be interpreted was addressed pretty early on. I don't even know if they if they made note of or if they explicitly said the word otherwise. Instead, what I found really interesting is the issue kind of came down on the mens rea requirement of corruptly. So, Natalie, when you read the statute earlier, you noted that, you know, the umbrella paragraph starts with whoever corruptly, and then that mens rea applies to both 1512C1 and 1512C2. And Judge Walker and Judge Katsis as well pushed the government on the outer limits of how corruptly should be interpreted. You know, at what point, for example, does, you know, standing up in the gallery to protest one of Congress's joint session 
constitute a corrupt intent or a corrupt purpose. Because if something as relatively innocuous as this example rises to the level of corrupt, then 1512c2 would cover virtually any act. And prosecutors, for their part, argue that corruptly is limited to defendants acting, you know, with a corrupt purpose, or I believe they said through independently corrupt means. And Judge Walker really pushed the government on this point to define each of these terms. So to define, you know, purpose, to define independently, to define means. And I think he he might have given away that he's not totally on the government side with regard to the mens rea requirement. I believe Judge Katsas might have explicitly even said that, that the mens rea requirement doesn't totally favor the government's interpretation. And defense counsel argue that corruptly is more broadly defined and means wrongful intent. So, for example, someone standing up in the gallery to protest Congress's joint session would fall under 1512c2. Uh, to the government's credit, they did mention that there are other limiting factors as well, um, including nexus requirement and the official proceeding requirement, though they didn't get into that because I think the the mens rea was just such a thorny issue. And across all three judges, it was it was really talked up and 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 discussed at length. Judge Pan and Katsas, to some extent, I would say, were unconvinced by defense counsel's argument. This is where there was quite a bit of back and forth between Judge Pan and defense counsel. Uh, She made clear that the issue of corruptly was not before the court. She even at one point suggested that the court would need supplemental briefing to decide the issue. And Judge Walker noted that the case can be remanded back down to Judge Nichols to decide. And so I think that insofar as the mens rea requirement is an issue, it's not going anywhere. And if the circuit court decides this case, I think there might be a consensus across all three judges, certainly with Judge Pan and likely Judge Katzis, Walker might be the wild card, that the charge that was dismissed by Judge Nichols will be overturned. But this this mens rea requirement, I think, is is the thing that will probably lead to disparate out- outcomes. I can totally see Judge Walker aligning with the defense counsel's interpretation and and not being too sympathetic to the government's argument. And I can possibly ju- see Judge Katz's doing the same, although Judge Pan seemed to uh, sympathize with the government's point. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, 
and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing, since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And what was your sense of how the judges were thinking about the corruptly mens rea standard vis-a-vis -vis other types of mens rea? that we're more familiar with. So, you know, with knowledge or 
with I mean corrupt intent is is used in other statutes, but this is you know it's it's not infrequent that mens rea standards will be called into question and and the subject of interpretation. But did you have a sense from the judges of where on the sort of relative seriousness they placed the idea of corruptly? The way to address that question, Natalie, is to explain a bit about what happened at court. So each side had 15 minutes to argue their case. And I believe defense counsel argued for 45 minutes. I also know that the government argued well beyond his designated time. And a lot of it was about this mens rea question of corruptly, especially when defense counsel was up. I think that all three judges mostly seem to agree that the charge is appropriate here. But there is a larger question of you know, future cases and and how those cases will be tried and resolved. And I think it makes some judges, including the sense I got Judge Walker, a little bit uncomfortable with how broadly the government has, even if they're trying to limit the definition of corruptly, but how broadly it can be applied. And so I think that it it's going to probably be a very important issue that either the three of them decide on or or goes back to Judge Nichols and perhaps goes back up to the appeals court. But I don't think it's going anywhere. Part of the reason is, is because both sides cited to similar case law, different case law, and made their point that, well, corruptly can be defined broadly or corruptly is actually narrowly defined. And if you look at the other two limiting factors, you know, and taken as a whole, the statute is quite limiting. I I think there's just no consensus. And I didn't sense a consensus in terms of agreement between the three judges. So I feel that the issue is going to come up and to give more clarity to uh, lower courts, the appeals court will have to consider this issue once more. Yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting that we don't know whether the DC Circuit, this DC Circuit panel, will weigh in or rather remand it, as it sounds the government is trying to suggest is necessary if this question isn't directly before this panel. So if it if it does need to be remanded, then of course we're talking about a, a much longer process. Um, of having this decided upon, presumably again, by the D.C. Circuit. Was there anything else out of the oral arguments that you found to be particularly interesting or surprising? It was odd because defense counsel seemed to question um, in a roundabout way whether this constituted an official proceeding. And, you know, Judge Pan was like, whoa, 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 this has already been decided. Judge Nichols has also concluded it's in the statute that this is an official proceeding. But then later on, defense counsel noted that for Section 1512C to apply, there must be a criminal investigation that's happening. And the judges didn't seem to bite. And I don't know, it's not a huge deal, but I just, I thought it was a little bit of a goofy argument. So tell us a little bit about what it felt like to be in the courtroom today. You, You mentioned already that the arguments ran much longer than the allocated 15 minutes, which of course is not all that unusual in appellate oral argument. But what did it feel like being there? Was it tense? Was it crowded? Was it, what was it like? Well, there were two defendants that were present at oral argument. They were um, 
Joseph Fisher and Garrett Miller, and they they seemed to be nodding along, appreciating what was being said. And I only say that because a lot of this is really dense and easy to get lost in if you don't know the legal jargon. But uh, they were engaged and were were really trying to get a sense of in the same way that I was, what's going to be the outcome of the case. All those stakes are much higher for them for obvious reasons. What was interesting is there was a bit of tension, I would say. There was at least on the part of Judge Pan when defense counsel came up, she was quite quiet when when the prosecutor went up and, and gave his argument. But she, you know, right out of the gate, you know, stopped defense counsel and asked a series of questions and really pushed him. I, I mentioned the point about, you know, give me a yes or no answer. Do you agree with Judge Nichols's argument? Um, she was really not sympathetic to the defendant's uh, side of the argument. You know, at the end, I actually I heard Joseph Fisher and his wife talking to their counsel and other individuals who weren't counsel. And, you know, they mentioned that it was really hard to convince Judge Pan, especially with this idea of corruptly. She's like, I don't, we don't need to decide that matter. No matter how much defense counsel was pushing on it, she really stuck to her guns and said, that's not before us. We, we were going back to corruptly. This is whack-a-mole. I, I'm, I ask you one question, you bring up something else, and this is just not working. And, you know, Fisher and his wife noted that she's she's coming from a, a different outlook and and there's not much we can do here. So I think in that sense it was it was quite tense. But I do think that the three judges were aligned when it came to this idea that this is unprecedented. I mean, you know, even Judge Walker who pushed the government hard on the idea of corruptly and for a while at least I thought that he was he, he was not sympathetic to the government and that this would not be a unanimous panel whenever the outcome came out. At the end, he he did make note of how unprecedented these actions were from the part of the defendants and that they should not be equated to just you know minor misdemeanors uh, counsel from the defendant side made note of you know the Bush v Gore case where, you had lawyers going down to Florida to stop the counting of votes because of issues over the hanging chads. And Judge Walker sort of pulled that out and said, you know, this is not the same thing. You have your client saying that this is war. This is nothing. This is nowhere close to lawyers flying down to Florida and trying to figure out this hanging chads issue. And so at least in that sense, there was unanimity and agreement that these were unprecedented actions. The question, I think, is to what extent 1512C2 applies. I think they'll all agree it does, but then the secondary question is, okay, well, how about this question of corruptly? That's where it gets fuzzier. I think that's where the unanimity might break apart a little bit. And so it'll be interesting to continue watching this case, perhaps get remanded, and see what Judge Nichols decides. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's talk now about, as as we've both alluded to, the implications for this case, um, not only for these defendants, for whom, of course, it is very important. This case really has very broad implications for 
other January 6th related prosecutions. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what those implications are? Sure. So 1512C2 carries a hefty, hefty penalty of 20 years in in prison. And this charge has been the stiffest charge that prosecutors have levied against. I, I think at this point, it's about a third of January 6th cases. And already 70 rioters have been convicted of this charge. So if the D.C. Circuit fines for the defendants, it could upend hundreds of felony prosecutions. And that would then frustrate the Justice Department's efforts to to bring the Capitol rioters to justice. Yeah. And I'm just going to borrow from the excellent work of our colleague, Roger Parloff, who has written about this issue a couple of times for Lawfare, who by his count says there are currently about 290 cases against January 6th defendants involving 1512C2 charges. 70, as you said, have been convicted with either the charge or conspiracy to commit it. Um, And this includes some high-profile people whom people are likely to remember, including Jacob Chansley, who's known as the QAnon shaman for Oath Keepers and for Proud Boys. So this this really would not only in terms of numbers, but in terms of the individuals who have already been convicted under this charge would really have a huge impact. And the other one actually that occurred to me that I think is also worth mentioning, you had referenced earlier the fact that this, of course, would apply to future prosecutions. We know that investigations of potential criminal defendants are still underway and DOJ is still busy bringing charges. But there is one area where 1512C2 may be particularly important, again, with actually a a somewhat different pool of potential criminal defendants. And that is individuals who were not actually at the Capitol that day, but were otherwise involved with either the planning or the the issues that sort of stoked the outrage leading to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So in particular, one example of this is John Eastman. So this is, I apologize, going to sound like a little bit of a diversion, but I think is an interesting case study. Um, we know from reporting that John Eastman is under investigation in connection with the broader January 6th investigation by DOJ. And John Eastman was the Trump advisor and the attorney who came up with the plan to pressure Vice President Pence to either delay or overturn the certification of Joe Biden's victory on January 6th. So there was an unrelated proceeding um, in which John Eastman was challenging a subpoena by the January 6th committee in Congress. And that is related to this because he was arguing that the documents the committee wanted were subject to privilege. The committee argued that even if some of the documents were privileged, the crime fraud exception to privilege applied. And so this led the judge in that case, which again is not a criminal case and is not an adjudication of a crime um, or of a charge, that led the judge in this case to issue an opinion in which he said that it is more likely than not that the plan that was being discussed between John Eastman and then President Trump likely constituted 
a corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. So all of that is to say that, of course, we don't know this. The investigation is still underway. John Eastman has not been indicted. But in situations like this, we have reason to believe that a charge that DOJ might be considering against someone like John Eastman might be, in fact, 1512C2. Um, And as I mentioned, that's sort of a different population of potential criminal defendants. So this this particular case that we've just spoken about has far-reaching implications even beyond the immediate world of criminal defendants we've been mostly focused on thus far. Right. And to that point, again, Roger uh, has has made note very presciently that under Section 1512C2, President Trump could likely be in violation. Uh, that's according to a civil case brief that was filed by the Select House Committee on the January 6th attack on the Capitol on March 2nd. All right. We are going to leave it there. And we will, of course, closely track next developments and speak with you again then. Thank you very much, Seraphine, for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yen. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.